listening to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. I am your host, Mike Petchy. How are you? Come on in, grab a seat. Um, welcome to uh, the latest episode of the Fujifilm Creator Series here at the show. Uh, I love these episodes. This is where I get introduced to the uh, young filmmakers and photographers that uh, Fujifilm has either helped out or has uh, helped finance short films for these folks. Um, and what's great is oftentimes these are people that don't necessarily have the opportunity to make these kind of movies. Um, and Fujifilm steps in because they see the talent, they see the opportunity to support the craft. Um, and so uh, these stories and these interviews are really interesting because more often than not, you're hearing about young filmmakers learning um, under the support from someone else. So there's a bunch of stuff to learn from in these episodes. Um, and today's episode is a good one. It's a really good one. I go deep with our guest today. Um, not only is she a writer and director, but she has also worked uh, for at least five years as a first assistant director. And I know how fascinated you guys are about assistant directors. Some of our highest listened to episodes, highest number of episodes have been with the assistant directors that we've had on the show. It is a weird and stressful and crazy gig. Um, and uh, me and our guest today talk about that. And we also go into detail about uh, what it's like to be a crew person uh, get into this business as a crew person and sort of uh, find the confidence to decide when it's okay to say no to crew jobs when you're trying to pursue your job as a director or as a creator. Like uh, getting over the anxiety of walking away from money, walking away from gigs to, you know, essentially say, I'm unavailable. And it's not just I'm unavailable because I'm booked on another job. I'm unavailable because I need to do my job, right? So we get into that stuff too, because I think it's a really important thing to talk about. I don't know if I've talked about it on the show yet. I don't think I have. Um, and that is a big anxiety with a lot of my friends that are crew people that are always like, I don't know how you got the courage to make your own short. And I've always wanted to make a short film and I've always wanted this. And then they, they get lost in the rhythms of it. We'll talk about that on today's show. So come on and make yourself at home. Grab a seat. How, before we get started, how are you? What's going on? Are you East Coast? Are you West Coast? I'm recording this on the 1st of March. So we just had ridiculously more rain, like tons and tons of rain, flooding rain out here, which is insane. And I know it's still snowing and dumping snow on the East Coast. How's your winter been? I remember being on the East Coast. I remember feeling hibernated. Uh, and uh, going into hibernation and, and, and sort of seasonal depression. And there was nothing better than that first day where it just got a little warm out. Like you started to smell the dirt, right? Because the ground had thawed out. And you're like, oh, okay, so it's a new year. That day is a great day. I think a lot of folks don't realize that living anywhere else other than when the seasons change, that that, that changeover day is an exciting day. It's a renewing day. Nothing better than when it starts to get warmer out, right? Um, well, today joining me on the show is Annalisa Lockhart. And like I said, she is a very talented filmmaker. Um, you definitely have to go check out her stuff. Uh, she just did a short film that is about to hit the festival circuit with Fujifilm. Uh, and I'm excited about that. And I'll be sure to post 
If you go to inlovewiththeprocess.com, I'll be sure to post all of the links to her short short films. Um, But she just did one uh, prior to that, that she shot right before the pandemic and went through the post-production through the pandemic um, called Inheritance. And I just saw the trailer for it and it looks fucking solid. Looks really good. And what's interesting to note here is because of her years of experience working on indie films and as a uh, assistant director, um, the relationships, the bonds that she was able to make on those productions uh, came to flourishing for her when she does a short film like this because she was able to ask a really great cinematographer that she's worked with to come on um, and she's able to get access to all sorts of interesting folks. So when you watch this trailer, and this is a short film trailer, so when you watch this trailer, you go, wow, this feels elevated. That's why. Not only is it her experience, not only is it her time uh, being uh, taught as a writer through school and then learning from other directors on set and then sort of building her skills as a director, but also the relationship she was able to call on to make her work feel even bigger and better. Um, So lots of really cool lessons for young filmmakers on today's show. But before we get started, uh, let's give a shout out to everybody that follows me on Instagram at Mike Petchy and everybody that follows the podcast on Instagram as well. That's a love with the process pod. Those are the places to go to see what I'm up to. I talk a lot. I'm very cryptic on the show about new projects that I'm working on, but I'm also posting images for that stuff on my Instagram account. That is the place to go if you have suggestions for guests for the show. Who do you guys want on the show this year? Uh, send me some DMs. Send them to me uh, on the In Love With The Process POD Instagram account. That way you don't get lost in the inbox of thousands and thousands of folks still asking me to see my film 12KM. Um, Because that is still happening. I'm still sending out links. (laughs) I was just talking to a friend of mine. He's like, can you hire someone to send out links? You're doing this so often. I go, I know, but doesn't that... I've promised to talk to everybody personally. That's kind of my problem is that I follow through with my promises. And there's going to have to hit a point where I automate this fucking thing. Um, But anyway, um, send me on the Instagram for the podcast and level the process POD your suggestions for guests. Who do you want on the show? Is there a specific celebrity? Is there a specific cinematographer? Do you want me to do more cinematography episodes this season? Do you want me to talk about what is the crew position that I haven't had on the show that you always wanted to learn about? That's a good one. Let me know. Send me a message. Um, And uh, definitely stick around. A lot of contests on the way. Um, New sponsors coming. Excited about this season. Excited about all this stuff. So that's it. Let me, let me not draw this out because we got a, a good episode, a longer episode on the way. So uh, sit, relax, join me and Annalisa on the brand new episode of In Love with the Process.
Annalisa, it's a pleasure to meet you. How are you? Pleasure to meet you too. Doing great. Doing great. Trying to stay warm. Um, just got a huge st- snowstorm blew through um, upstate New York. So it's a winter oh. wonderland. Yeah. I- I miss it. I used to be I, I used to be a Boston resident. So we I, I and you know, I'm like a big I'm like a big bearded hairy guy, so I love the cold. <laughs> so I miss it, man. I miss it. <clears throat> Although it's been like we're in some weird post apocalyptic like blade runner shit out here in Los Angeles right now where it's just been raining and raining and raining. We just crossed like record levels of rain. Yeah, nuts. I was just there. I got back um, to the East Coast on Monday. So I was there over the weekend. And I, like, even for me as an East Coaster, I was like, this rain isn't, like, everything it was breaking down. Yeah. Stoplights not working. Just, yeah. like, this is, yeah, very Blade Runner. Um, yes. So yes. The sideline nerd in me was kind of like, ooh, this is very atmospheric. But then... <laughs> My heart, my heart felt sad for all the infrastructure failing and people, you know, well, flooding, etc. This is weird mix, right? Because you know everything out here, like Los Angeles, has always been in a drought. I mean, with the, like, there's you know movies about how you know the the original people that built this city were stealing water from other folks and so uh you know we hit this period especially last year and the year before where it's like the reservoirs are drying up what are we going to do and so now we just have like ungodly amounts of rain and so you know most people are sitting around going well this will fix the drought right and everybody's like this is great but no, apparently the way that they've designed Los Angeles is that everything flows down through the the aqueduct or whatever they want, the river, the LA River, out into the ocean. <laughs> so yeah. it, it's like it's not right. even going into the water table here. So you're like, oh. yeah, it's not getting it's not getting captured in the yeah. way it should. Yeah. 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 So all the all we're doing is just washing out like homeless camps and 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 you know sleeping bags out into the ocean right now. Yeah. It's crazy. Um <clears throat> but um well it's cool to meet you. I am excited because I went through and looked at your stuff and um your I saw the, only the trailer. I haven't seen the full piece, but inheritance looks super fucking rad. Like the the lighting is really great. The performances and the trailers look really cool. The sense of suspense. I mean, you're right up my alley being a horror director myself. And I can <laughs> and I can tell just by looking at the trailer that you've been on sets for a while and you know what you're doing. So I'm excited to chat with you about all that stuff. Oh, amazing. Yeah, well yes. I have to send I have to send you the 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 link. It's on it's it's out on public on um Vimeo. Oh um, yeah, please do. Please send it to me. I'm excited. I was going to ask you that because you, how long ago did you do that movie? Um, I think we initially premiered in 2021. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, like spring of 2021 was when the festival run started and it went through to the end of 2022. Um, and, you know, was a, staff pick at Vimeo and that's kind of where we decided to have the film live mm-hmm. or amazing. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people were able to see it, um, see it there, which is, which is awesome. Like best thing you could hope for with a short film to get as many people to see it as possible. 
Yeah, hell yeah. Vimeo staff picks are huge for folks. The um, When did you film it? Was this like a pandemic movie or did you film it before the pandemic? We filmed um, right before. So like f- fall or August, September 2021. Oh, sorry, mm-hmm. 2019. Oh my God, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and so long so ago. We kind of like, yeah, right. We went into post during the pandemic. So that's it kind of like everything else got slowed down. Um, yeah. But I think in the end, it was great because I wanted to um, work on the score, which I collaborated on with my good friend, Evan Gitterman, um, who I worked with on my film with Fujifilm as well. And the special effects and like really dial it in. So I think it's funny when you're in those positions where a delay is kind of forced on you, Mm -hmm. uh, it can feel like, why, why is the, why is fate being cruel to me? But I think in the end, you know, once the thing comes out and you spent more time with it, it's, it's always great. Um, It, you know, tends to, tends to turn out for the better having a little bit more time. Yeah, I feel the same way. And it's weird, right? Because I don't know if you go through the same process, but I put a lot of stress on myself as far as timelines are concerned whenever I do a film or a project. And I'm I'm in the process right now of finishing up my, my most recent one. And I was like, look, you're going to get it done by the end of February. <laughs> so like I make, I make these like arbitrary dates where I'm like, okay, end of February, that's it. And so then I'm struggling and racing and getting there. And then you know, you, I, I, I hit a point in my edit where I go, I should probably do like another day of inserts. That'll make it better. And then the producer brain in me goes, you said you were going to have it done by the end of February. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I totally, I think that there's, um, right. The difference between arbitrary dates and mm-hmm. kind of realistic mm-hmm. deadlines, mm-hmm. because I think that, I think the, um, you know, the good producer in your brain, because it could still be the producer is like, listen, man, if you need more time, like explain to me why you need more time. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Right. Yes. Um, That's what the best producers do. They are um, realistic with how things get made. Um, So yeah, I think that like goal setting, I think what I've started to gravitate toward more lately is, um, is blocking out time. Like rather than saying I'm going to do all of these things and making a list, I sort of block it out in time increments. Like here's what I'm working on this Hmm. week over the month, because once you lay it out that way, you can be more realistic with yourself for what you get done. And ends up for me anyway, ends up being more fruitful because I'm putting more quality work in. Um, Because I think sometimes I've noticed like if I, have a deadline like end of February and sort of blow past it. Mm-hmm. And then it's April. I'm like, wow, I wish I had kind of just said like by the end of March because <laughs> I could have done that. Um, right. So right. And you're not a you know, mind games. We're playing with ourselves to try to exactly, exactly. You're not beating yourself. Cause there is a lot of those mind games that, that kick in where you're like, fuck. Um, because for me, Whenever I'm putting things together, I feel like I need to make sure that I have a deadline. I'm, I need to make sure that I have these dates in order to, you know, do this the, the long haul. If you're producing, as you, I'm sure you know, 
if you're producing your own stuff, if you're producing your own content, you're the boss. You're the only one, you know, pulling everybody along. And and oftentimes it's tough being a director and a producer because you want to just sort of, you know, take your time and you want to be able to play with this stuff. But then there's also this side of my brain, at least, that's like, dude, you got to get it done by this period of time. Because if you're going to get it to festivals, it has to be done by this period of time. And so, you know, it's, I find that that's the, one of the biggest fights that I'm constantly having in my own brain of like the, the battle of commerce and the battle of creativity. Um, do, do you produce all of your own stuff too? Do you feel the same way? Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely work with producers as well. Um, but I, I do feel the same way. Um, mm-hmm. and I think that the, Right. The battle of commerce. And that's, that's kind of like why I find it helpful to also partner with producers is, um, having, having at least one other person on your team who's kind of outside of your own head, um, (laughs) for that perspective too, because, um, like commerce, like talking about time, um, you know, releasing something, earlier when it's not completely done is not as good as waiting a little bit longer. At least that's what my exactly producer on inheritance um, would say. Um, shoot. And there was something else I was going to say. Oh yeah. And I think that the way that I sort of, if I'm being too hard on myself, like if the producer side of my brain is kind of like berating me for not keeping things organized, it's helpful for me to remember that, um, it's about telling a story and about telling like a story well. Um, so if I kind of recenter on that, mm. everything else fades away and the work becomes easier again. Mm. Uh, at least for me. No, it's it like it's it's nice to actually hear you talk about it because this is one of those things. I I think that it's not one of those sexy things to talk about when you're talking about like you know the romanticism behind cinema, but this is the kind of stuff that haunts you, I think, as a filmmaker, as you're trying to, you know, create content and put things out there because, you know, you're only as good as the last thing you did. And so it's, for me, I always feel like there's a, ah, it's not a frantic struggle, but it, it is always like, hey, look, I got I to gotta do something new. I got to do something great right now. I have to follow this up. Um, and it, it oftentimes is that battle for me between like, you know, having a great idea and being very inspired and then also going like, all right, how long is this going to take? Is this going to be another year before this comes out? Fuck. Okay. Let's, right. let, let's wrap this up. And so <clears throat> it's interesting to hear how you process it because, uh, you know, we all process it in our own weird sort of neurotic way. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. Um, so how long have you uh, been directing now? How long have you been making movies? Um, I guess those are kind of two different. So I've, I've been working in film for um almost nine years um because mm-hmm. i started out as a ad after when i graduated from college like right after college um on indie features primarily how'd you get um, into the why'd you get into the ad department that's very specific yeah i mean i <laughs> i i did a lot of theater in college and um, had PA'd on some things as an undergrad and then uh, 
you know, wanted to wanted to be on set and kind of had an idea of how I could do that based on like my skill set, um, having mm-hmm. been having done like stage management and stuff. So oh, yeah, yeah. kind of just asked about that um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and learned along the way, which was very stressful, but um, <laughs> super I'm rewarding. Sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, the AD department's stressful to begin with, and then trying to learn yeah. while you do it, that that must have been intense. <laughs> yeah, really intense. But then I got, I got to work on a, a lot of really amazing stuff and observe, so did really get to learn kind of the nuts and bolts of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I started writing my, my short film inheritance, the people, people that I had collaborated with on stuff as an AD were the people that I sort of like picked to work with. So had kind of a really amazing selection of like artists to work with. So for example, the DP Charlotte Hornsby, I had, um, AD to short that she shot and then also a feature that she shot. So we had talked about this project for a while together. Mm-hmm. And she was sort of like, when you have, when you have things set up, when you have time, like, let me know, I'd love to work on this with you. Um, similarly, the production designer, April Lasky, I'd worked with her a couple times. Um, the gaffer, Dan Debray, so all of these people that I kind of interacted with in that space. So I think that meant that I was able to kind of form a really cohesive team, which helps immensely when you have a small budget and like it was very family band style mm-hmm. sort of caravan up to rural Vermont to like my family's cabin, which where we shot the film and you know, we didn't camp. We stayed at like friends' houses in the area, but um, <laughs> it, you know, it was really fun. It was one of the best times. So that's kind of how I got there. And that, yeah, right, we shot that in 2019. It came out in 2021. Mm-hmm. And kind of since then, I've been doing a lot of writing, um, directing you know, music videos. I'm working on a documentary piece right now. Um, nice. I wrote and directed Mirasol for Fujifilm um, and am working on a feature script right now. So very nice. I think, yeah. So it took the pivot is always the pivot is always hard. The pivot was challenging to make because it kind of meant, um, creating space for myself um, both like internally and externally, because it's really hard to turn down jobs. Mm-hmm. And I kind of say like the goal was always to write and direct my own stuff. So nobody's going to give me permission to do that besides myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of a hard lesson to learn. Um, because, right, you're your you're, can be your own worst critic. You can you're. It's just like realizing that the battle is all in your head is a wild one. Um, yes. I, think I was able to be like, oh, I I can give myself permission. Great, I'm going to go do this. Um, yeah. Well, well, so it's interesting because I, I was just having this conversation with a friend of mine who works in the business the other day, and we were talking about 
um, folks that come up through the crew side of filmmaking. And, you know, when I came up, I, I was a cinematographer for a short period of time. And then I quickly sort of didn't fall into the feature film crew department. I was like, now nah, I'm going to start a production company. And I went that way quickly. And I have a lot of really great, talented director friends that went up through the crew stuff. And a friend of mine, Stu, he's a, uh, an assistant director as well. And I've got like a bunch of my friends that are key grips that are really great directors. What ends up happening with a lot of these guys and, and women that work in this business is that when you're hired on feature crews, it's all about your reputations, all about the connections that you make. And those connections lead to the next job. And so like, if you're working as like a grip or an electric on a team, you're really trying to form a relationship with cinematographers. You're really trying to form a relationship with, um, you know, line producers. And when they call you, oftentimes what happens is, is that you wrap a gig, you go for what, three, four weeks on a small one, on the larger ones, much longer than that. And then um, they oftentimes will call you to do the next one. And the fear generally, and you can agree or disagree with me on this, the fear generally is like, if I don't say yes this time, then they're going to forget my number or I won't get a call next time. Did you ever feel that? Yeah, of course. And it's, I think it's like two things. I think the first, the reality is they probably won't forget your number, right? Like right. if you really, you know, you can always, if you want to down the line, always reach out again. And that's kind of my belief. But the, the bigger thing is committing, for me to committing to a pivot means like being able to play out, you know, your worst fear scenarios in your head and say like, is it okay if they never call me back? <laughs> yes. Right? Yeah, and then, right. And then if it is, like, that's great. And I think being able to be at peace with that is important um, if you're trying not to be a key grip anymore, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the hard part, right? So yeah. because you get into the grind, you get into the system of like, all right, especially when you're doing fe feature films, uh, or even TV series or even worse, where it's like all encompassing. So you go do one of these productions and like every fucking day, even though you have a few days off, you're still desperately trying to do your laundry and, and rest on the stuff. You, you really don't have time off when you're on one of these productions. And you end up, especially if you're a crew member, you end up sort of being guided through everything like here's where to go uh maybe you're gonna get driven there uh maybe you're sleeping or staying on that on that location um and so every day just becomes the grind of that work and i know for a lot of friends that i've had that work in that business they're like i want to be a director but i'm so fucking exhausted by the time i finish a week on this i i can't even think creatively and so it really required them to have that moment that you're talking about, which is like, if I'm going to do this, I got to do this. And I have to step away from this for a little while, if anything, just to reset my brain and just to sort of fall into this creative hole that I need to go down. Um, and a lot of folks, that's really difficult to do. Um, and like, how hard was it for you to, to, to make that jump? Was it a difficult jump for you or? Um, I think it, 
Yeah, I think it, I think it was saying no to things is hard. Um, of course, like we're talking about, um, mm-hmm. but each time I did, it got easier. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still do the, I still do the, like, I'm not available for this job thing. I don't say like, Oh, I don't do this anymore. I just say yes. I'm not available. Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that, um, uh, once, once you start saying no, it gets easier. And then there's a certain amount of pride you have in being able to do that. Yes. Is also really exciting. Um, there were a few projects that were pretty, that were hard for me to say no to because either they were really exciting or I really like loved the director or the producer. Um, and I think it can feel at this point, you know, it can feel worse to feel like you're letting people down, but, um, with all things, um, my belief is you can't uh, hold somebody else's feelings over your own. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that that like martyr mentality can be really harmful in the long term, um, which goes along with like that exhaustion and feeling like you have this duty to do a job. And it's like, no, you, you have a duty to, um, try to do what makes you happy and do it in the most graceful way possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, I'm, <laughs> I know we sort of jumped into this pretty quick, but I think it's an important thing because we haven't talked about it on the show before. And there is this, you know, finding that confidence and being able to say no and actually redefining in your head what being unavailable really means. It doesn't necessarily mean it's not always like I'm unavailable because I'm booked on this other project and that's why I can't do it. It's I'm unavailable because I'm going to do my own project. And that is just as important as being on someone else's gig. It really is. Um, And it, once you, it took me a while to get there. And I feel like in the, in the process of, of, of deciding to, to join the circus that we're in, which is this business with no rules, right? And so we joined the circus, and in the beginning, it's, you know, almost like this, you know, centered focus, at least for me, it was this centered focus, almost desperate way of being like, I got to learn as much as I can. I got to f- say yes to as many things as I possibly can, get into the position, meet these people, form these connections, and do this. So yes, 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 yes. And like almost exhaustively booking yourself to do this, and then that becomes a rhythm. You get good at that. You get good at meeting people. You get good at your job and that task. And then the the next step for you is sort of finding what, what we're talking about right now, which is like, okay, here's a reassessment. Am I going to be an assistant director for, for the rest of my life? Is that what I'm doing? Because I'm getting really fucking good at it. And that's what I'm getting known for. Or do I have to pump the brakes a little bit here and sort of ask myself internally, like, yeah, but I want to fucking direct as well. And so I, I'm learning, it seems like you were learning a lot from what you were seeing on set, right? I'm sure you pulled a ton of stuff from your experience being an assistant director into your work, correct? Definitely. Yeah. And I was lucky because I, I, you know, I worked on indie features that were smaller and I did join the DGA. So I've Mm -hmm. worked on a couple of union things, but wasn't in that. Um, 
really like regimented union world as much. So was able to do things in my own style a little bit. Um, but absolutely the, the learnings it's for me too. It was like, okay, have I learned all I need to learn also? That's like another important question (laughs) um, to ask, but yeah, it's a, no, it's just funny you talking about kind of um, pumping the brakes on something you're really good at. I, I just had a conversation. This was probably like four or five years ago. I was interviewing um, for a job with this really phenomenal first AD mm-hmm. and like sort of was talking about my aspirations a little bit. And he stopped me and just said like, if you're going to go do something, you should go do it now. Like <laughs> I didn't do that and I'm super happy, but like, if you're going to go be a director or writer, like you just got to go do it. Yeah. And I like hear his voice echo in my head all the time. And I think that goes for, that's just like a good life way of being. <laughs> yeah. For anything. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Doing something instead of talking about it. Um, but, but yeah, I, and I think the things that I learned, um, which I'm name of your podcast, I'm really into processes and mm-hmm. sort of apply tinkering with them and applying them. So like one example is um, I went to school for creative writing. So I did kind of work on my writing practice and sort of coming up with a way to be organized about that in my life. Um, Just because that was something that was like drilled into me then, but with the ADing, um, there's a lot of organization and prep that goes into that. And mm-hmm. um, I definitely carry that into directing and prepping for projects. Um, trying to do it from the director brain as much as possible. Like I'm not ADing the things that I'm directing, but I am, you know, approaching prep, just like thinking of as many things as possible, like anything that will come up on the day of. Mm-hmm. and making as many decisions in advance um, because then that makes my life easier on set and makes everybody else's lives easier because then, you know, I'm able to have time with the actors that I wouldn't have if a bunch of decisions are, are left to the last minute. And I think that comes from ADing because a lot of those questions are the questions that I would be asking the director to make their mind about, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. My buddy who is the director in an AD, I would joke with him all the time. I'm like, this is obviously from the AD side of your brain. <laughs> He's pulling everything out. It's like, yeah, no, I get it. You're an AD. I get it. Because <laughs> it's so prepped. It's so intensely prepped. And it's, it's, I mean, I've always thought that way uh, myself because being a cinematographer, you were kind of thinking that way and you were always working with the AD department. And so whenever I plan things, I find like I'm I'm always planning for the worst in my brain so that I, or running through this, the worst case scenarios in my brain so that I can come up with options that on the set are easy to fall back on. But uh, it's it's also like this conflict it's that conflict again, where with me, it's like, all right, I've done these other positions, but I also just need, sometimes just need to be the stubborn director that goes, no, I don't care. It, we have to do this. 
Do you feel the same way? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, And I think I'm still learning to be that person. Me too. Me too. Yeah. People pleaser (laughs) for sure. So, (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. I like to be a good student. I like to be agreeable. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I think as a DP, I'm sure you've been in situations with directors that are being stubborn. And, Mm -hmm. but so you have, but hopefully that just means that you have sympathy for both sides of the equation. Um, you do. You yeah. do. It, it doesn't make it any easier, <laughs> but you yeah. do. You do. You sit there and go, fuck, I have to be that guy that I was yelling. All right. Yeah, guys, sorry. I know that we've been doing this forever, but if I don't get this shot, then I can't assemble this sequence and everything we've done is for nothing. So please, let's just do it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The struggles. Um, but, I mean, this stuff is real. And I think this is the important stuff to talk about because I know for a fact there are people listening to the show right now that are on cruise and they've always wanted to direct and they're looking for the right opportunity to do it. And, you know, I've said it on the show multiple times that there's a power to going and working on teams and crews and uh, in our industry, the power of actually physically doing it is oftentimes more powerful than even going to film school for that sort of stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think you can get trapped in that world too. And so I'm happy that we're chatting about all this. Yeah, me too. Right. And that's the question of like, have I learned everything I need to learn for now? Yeah. How do you, when did you ask? Yeah. Did you, did you ask yourself that question and where were you at that part? Did you decide that you were like, look, I, I, it's time for me to move on because of that. I mean, I think that um, I think that was a helpful nudge for certain jobs. Like, what would I be getting out of this? Is it working with a really cool creative, or is it um, another learning experience, or is it because I feel obligated to do it? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, and I think part of it is. Um, like there are so many different um, directing styles and and genres, so um, I think there right there's like a certain there's a limit to how much you can learn by just watching, mm-hmm. too, um, which is the you know unfortunate truth that going out in the waters by yourself and making some mistakes is inevitable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's ultimately where it leads to. And that's a powerful statement. There's only a certain amount that you can learn by watching. And sometimes you feel like when you're watching somebody else, especially if it's indie stuff, you're watching somebody else and you're watching them learn. And, you know, you're learning through them vicariously to a certain extent, but there also sort of hits a point where I'm like, yeah, but I could be doing that right now. I should be the one that's learning this this thing. I don't need to watch someone else learn this thing. I should actually physically do that. Because when you come to the back end of it, you go, oh, you don't know what the fuck you're doing either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and you're like, oh, okay, well, I should just do this then. You know, that was my thing where this sort of hit a point when I went, okay. And as a cinematographer, you wind up 
you know, on smaller productions and even on larger productions with a lot of cinematographers I've had on the show, they often end up directing. Like there hits a period of time, especially with inexperienced directors where it's like, oh, all right, I'll pick up the slack. Got it, got it, got it. Yeah. I'm sure you've seen that. Definitely. And that's a, that's a tough, tough place to be. And can mean that um, decisions, right? There's no kind of, <laughs> there's few good ways out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and having kind of all the decisions triangulate onto one person um, can make everybody's lives like a little bit awkward. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, then, and then the gaffer is helping DP and then the best boy is the gaffer. and mm-hmm. um, <laughs> Everything shifts. Yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 so and that's like and i think those moments too and this can be like in any department any uh place along the production it's is where like the grace comes in because i also think that i've seen situations where the dp ends up directing and kind of doesn't say anything mm-hmm. um and instead takes it on kind of wordlessly and I don't think that's helpful either and it's really hard to approach a director and be like hey you need to like do more um for anybody because I feel like also in those situations the producers are afraid to talk to them yeah the AD's afraid to talk to them so nobody's everyone's tiptoeing around them and then that's how you get people who like never learn that sounds really harsh but that's kind of true that's 100% what it is. true and, and it's yeah. weird because oftentimes the DP is the person that the director will trust the most in those situations to be the most honest with them. So I guess that's where the grace comes in because um, sometimes taking a deep breath and stepping back and just course correcting a little bit can go a long way. Right. So, like I said, at the beginning of the... uh, uh, Let me start that again. All right. So, like I said, at the beginning of this episode, this is one of our Fujifilm Creator Series episodes. Uh, It is sponsored by Fujifilm. Yes, Fujifilm is a sponsor of the show. We love them for it. But beyond that, and if you guys haven't heard the backstory, I didn't reach out to Fujifilm. uh, And honestly, they didn't reach out to me to be a sponsor of the show. I met Victor uh, at a party and him and I talked and we got lost in a conversation and then I had him on the show. You can go back and listen to the episode with Victor from Fujifilm. Um, and uh, we both really admire each other. We both have a respect for each other creatively. And after him being on the show, he's like, I love this show. I want to help sponsor the show. And then that's the path that we fell down. And so I just want to be a completely apparent about the relationship that I have with Fujifilm. Anything that we talk about on the show, they don't send us scripts. They don't tell us what to talk about. They don't even care if we talk about them while we do it. I believe in doing so because I believe in supporting the folks that support us. So sponsoring today's episode is Fujifilm. Um, and I just uh, had a conversation off air 
with uh, Annalisa, and they shot her latest piece with uh, one of their uh, HS. I'm sorry, I always screw it up. It's so weird because when I look at it, it's. I think I've got dyslexia. <laughs> I think it's what it is. So she shot uh, her last piece with the XH2S, which is a great camera. If you guys are looking for a rig to make independent films with, if you're looking to start up a production company and you want a 4K camera that shoots ProRes um, and is also a powerful still camera, I can't say enough great things about this rig. I love Fujifilm's color profiles that they have embedded in the camera. They have lots that are inside the camera that you can choose from, um, or you can shoot the stuff raw. Uh, and I'm telling you, it'll either shoot Apple ProRes or it'll also shoot H.264s, H.265s. I will say this, though. Even though the H.264s are smaller format, oftentimes you have trouble with them in playback in the editors. I know playing back uh, H.264 in Premiere can lag sometimes because it's like a really weird compressive format that they still have trouble with. So I'm, I would advise against it. As from my personal opinion and whether or not Fuji agrees with me, um, I would I would suggest you shoot Apple Pro S if you want like a very easy post-production workflow, you know. Um, but uh, I love this camera. Uh, Gina and I were just shooting with it yesterday. It's why I'm kind of tired. I just did an 11-hour day with her on her set. Uh, she did a full photo shoot where she used the GFX 100S, which is their large format camera. And uh, we are mounting... Uh, different lenses on it with our other sponsor, the Photo Deox people. So that's um, F O T O D I O X, Photo Deox. Right? Did I do that right? Hold on. No, so it's, <laughs> I totally did that wrong too. Mike is fucking everything up today. So it's F O T d-i-o-x so the photo deox and they sent us which i'm pumped about um pl mount adapters so i can actually put cinema lenses on my uh fuji cameras and gina also got medium format uh, mamiya adapters for her uh gfx so yesterday we were shooting with the uh gfx 100s and what I love about it is that the um, high ISOs have a very low grain. So we were shooting yesterday. What was the calculations? We did, I think we were shooting at 2,500 ISO. We were using her Mamiya medium format lenses, which have a low f-stop of 4.5. So start doing the calculations. Low f-stop of a 4.5 she has to shoot at at least 100, I'm sorry, 1-200 shutter speed because there's motion, there's movement from the subjects. So that cuts the light stops off. And then when we use the um, <clears throat> Photo Deox adapter, I think that cuts at least a stop or half stop as well. But the benefits of using that adapter, I don't know if you guys have ever used vintage um, medium format lenses. A lot of them have a minimum focus of like four feet so for those of you who don't use cameras, that means your subject has to be at least four feet away from the front of the lens for it to be able to get focus, which is tough if you want to do really, really creamy close-ups, 
let's say you just wanted to fill the frame with their eyes and their nose. With the adapter from Photodeox, you were able to uh, use a macro feature with it because of how it focuses. It actually puts the lens further away from the camera body, which gives you an, a closer focus, which is how extenders work, by the way. That's how I get all my really cool macro shots when I shoot uh, like 12 cam and the new piece. Um, so now Gene is able to use the creaminess of these vintage media format lenses, but even closer than ever done before. So that combination with Fujifilm and these adapters has been fucking really cool. And I can't wait for these images to come out because they're just, they're juicy. They feel classic, but modern because of the ability to get closer with them. Um, and yeah, it was a bit of a pain in the ass. I was lighting, I had like a 1200 unit that was running at 100% all day because I needed as much light as I possibly could get. But luckily, uh, the low grain on the high ISO on Fujifilm enabled me to use a lot more of the units that I would have been able to use if I was just shooting medium format in any other camera. So it was, and we did constant light, by the way. We weren't using strobes. So it was pretty cool. Pretty intense day. <sighs> Very intense technical day yesterday. I'm getting old. Fucking like jettisoning up large heavy lights and up and down and up and down. <sighs> it's craziness. Um, but the images look great. Um, so I can't say enough great things about Fujifilm uh, and Photodeox. So we'll have the links for the both of them in the description of this episode. Please click those links. Check them out. Look at the new stuff. And I'm telling you, there's a new camera on the market or coming, the, coming soon from Fujifilm. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about it yet, and I just did. But there's a new camera coming that's going to be pretty amazing from them. So definitely check them out. Links embedded in the description of this episode. Um, and now that I have these sweet, sweet adapters from Photodeox, um, I'm going over to my friends over at Boca Rentals here in California. Best place to rent lenses, the best place to rent cameras is Boca Rentals, especially if you're a younger filmmaker, if you're a younger cinematographer. These guys work very hard to form solid relationships um, with young filmmakers um, because they believe it's very smartly so that we are the future of the business. And I say this over and over and over again. One of the most important things to do, especially if you're a cinematographer, but even if you're just a filmmaker or producer, is make friends with your local rental house. They will always have the newest gear in the market. They will always have the sexiest uh, lenses out there. So when you have clients that are like, hey, I want my commercial to look like Euphoria, you can go, well, I know exactly where to get the lenses that they use to shoot that. Head on over to Boca Rentals. Go to bocarentals.com, check them out. Um, and I'm super excited because I'm about to do reshoots this weekend and I'm getting my hands back on the Aerie Mini LF, which I'm excited about. Um, and I'm going to be shooting with the Orion series, uh, Anamorphics. Um, so I get to team up with all of my sponsors and I'm going to be throwing those PL mounted Anamorphics on my Fujifilm cameras using the Photodeox, uh, PL mount. So it's all coming. Do you see how it all works? And not only do these folks sponsor the show, but because of their help, I'm able to make really great, beautiful looking movies too. So there's no reason why you can't do the same. Um, so next time you ask me, Mike, what are you shooting with? 
I'll say to you, you should be listening to the ad reads on the podcast episodes. <laughs> Finally supporting us on the show, the, the guys that have been here since the beginning, Puget Systems. So like I'm using all this really great camera, really great lens stuff. I have everything shot. Now I got to bring it into my edit machine. What are you editing on? Is your machine fast enough? Um, the insanity that I'm dealing with right now is that I'm shooting uh, with the large format. So with the Airy LF, which the file sizes are massive. And so in my Puget system, I'm cramming in all new um, solid state drives. So I'm putting in these Samsung solid state four terabyte drives. They're pricey. They're like 300 bucks a pop, but I got to buy a new one today. They're going in. And uh, I'm taking up all that storage space as I'm cutting this stuff. But the combination of that solid state drive running in my Puget system, I, in my timeline, am running large format, large format, 4K footage. Sometimes I'm bringing in some 6K footage from the Blackmagic camera that we have, that we shoot inserts with. Um, so I have a mixed media uh, sequence and it runs real time real-time full res and I've got multiple tracks I think my latest timeline has like 24 tracks of video that run real-time zero lag and what is so beautiful about what I'm doing here is that I'm able to crack open my system and put new drives in it take the drives out swap the drives between one system and the next because I've got two Puget systems here in the edit space so I'm also while cutting uh, the new short film I'm also cutting Gina's B. Miller campaign stuff, which was also shot LF. So it's been intense. These systems are, are practically smoking because they're running all the time. Um, and if you're looking for a brand new editor and you want to buy the machine that I have, go to PugetSystems.com and say, Mike's been raving about you guys. What is this computer he has? What are the specs? We'd like to buy one or we'd like to make our own. And what's great about Puget is that you can build a machine based upon software that you use. So you can click on the software stuff. They'll give you a base package to start with, but then you just reach out to them and you tell them exactly what you need and what you want. This is the perfect place to go if you're running a post-production facility and you need to have multiple computers that are all working together. Perfect place to go. You don't always have to go to the big boys. That's You spend way too much money when you're buying Apple products on the unboxing experience. Build yourself a PC. Build yourself something that won't be outdated in five years. It'll be with you for the long run. I think the oldest PC that I have, the oldest Puget, is almost eight years now. So think about that. Think about the money that you can make on these systems, right? Because it only takes you about a year and change to pay it off. Right? You don't want the thing to be outdated at that point. You can make money on it. Be smart. PugetSystems.com. Check it out. All right, let's get back to it with Annalisa. a lot of the ego and the insecurity and the imposter syndrome which sort of falls into for play for a lot of different directors and and uh 
the truth of the matter is, is that most cinematographers just have more time on set than directors do, you know, because they're yeah. always fucking working. And they the, the cinematographers are just full throttle consistently, especially if you're on a TV series. I mean, all TV shows right now are writers and cinematographers. Like, the directors are such a secondary thought for television right now. Right. So, it, like, it, it's, it's very easy... <clears throat> I, when I was younger, when I was a younger director, I was afraid to work with more experienced cinematographers because I didn't want, I had heard stories of how they would steamroll over directors, especially young directors, where they would come in there and go, nah, it's not the right lens to use, or you would have to do this. And and so um, when I started, I'm like, I'm going to learn how to be a cinematographer specifically for that. Um, but uh, yeah, you know. What was that? Yeah. I'm sorry. There's like I, a slight bit delay. So that's <laughs> I interesting. That's interesting yeah. that you yeah. made that choice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I mean, but I was also directing out of Boston, so it, back then it really wasn't like a big production. It now is, but it, it wasn't a big production place back then, and so um, a lot of the folks that I would have to deal with, and this was like 1999, 98, so. The digital revolution was just like there was rumors about this stuff coming out. And so at that time period, I'm like, all right, I'm going to be dealing with like these old 35 millimeter crusty New England cinematographers that really don't want to put the time in with a young kid. So I should look, teach myself how to do this stuff. And, and then I jumped into the digital revolution because I was like, well, these guys know how to do 35. They've been doing it for, you know, 40, 50, 60 years some of these folks. So let me try this new medium that they don't know anything about. And uh, and at the time, really weren't giving respect to, because at the time, everybody was like, digital video cameras, like, what are we shooting, a basketball game? You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, jumping into that realm for me was really great, because, you know, it ended up creating a career for me for a little period of time. And then um, also, um, I now, as a director, know how to communicate with my cinematographers because I've done it. So it's it's nice. The the, the folks that I work with, uh, specifically my, my current cinematographer, we have such a great relationship because he knows like, dude, I know you know how to do this. So how can I bring my skills and make it even better? And so it becomes this really interesting marriage that happens with it. Um, and I've seen, I've worked with directors that don't know anything about lenses or don't know anything about you know, the, the language of cinema, either they're coming in as a writer or they're coming in as an actor and they're performance focused. And so it's always uh, really an important early conversation to have where it's like, okay, uh, you need me to pick up the slack for you when it comes to the visuals. Um, that's why I'm here. I could do that, but you really should understand. And let's go through this process of me teaching you as much as I can, as we do this. So that way it isn't always that way. That way because such an important part of your job as a director is having a grasp on this stuff. So it's dangerous to sort of lean as hard as you are on the cinematographer because they can take it from you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, purely, not purely, but an observation I've had being an AD in some of those situations is, um, if the director does not um, hasn't had that conversation, then there are things 
right, that the DP is doing and it seems like it's really important and they, they're maybe not sure what the shot is and if it's a very elaborate setup. Um, and so they're kind of seeding control in those scenarios. Yeah. And we might be shooting something that they don't really want. <laughs> and um, yeah. that's always awkward because like nobody wants that. Um, uh, and I think, right, as much kind of confidence, because that's what it is too, like, confidence to say what you don't know um Mm -hmm. or you know learning and then having all the information you need to make a good decision yeah for sure i mean that's the that's the toughest part right and then that director you know may convince herself at that period of time like all right well the cinematographer really knows uh, what she's doing. And so I'll just let her run with this. And then it isn't until you get into the edit room and then you're in the edit room and you're looking at that bin of like four clips instead of seven clips because they took forever on that shot. You're like, fuck, I knew it. <laughs> you know? And so it's, you're not really learning until the post process. And then, and then the post process, it's too late. And yeah. I, what I try to say to folks that listen to the show, I, I think it's really important, especially if you're a young director and I still consider, my, I've been doing it for 20 years, I consider myself a young director. Um, you have to have the people around you that you can confidently say to, look, I don't know all the answers, man. I don't know how to do half of this stuff. That's why you're here. I'm here to make sure that it's the track is laid straight for this piece, and I'll keep the train on that track, and I'm the tastemaker for this movie, but I'm going to rely heavily on you guys uh, to figure some of these things out. Cause I don't fucking know how to do that. And at the end of the day, you have to run everything by me and we have to talk about it, but your ideas are going to be a, such an important part of this movie. So let's, let's be honest with each other. Let's be straightforward with each other. With, what's with what's happening and let's learn and discover this thing together. And I think if you could start a, a production with a conversation like that and genuinely while you're casting or hiring folks to work with you, if you feel like they are receptive to that, then then you'll you'll feel a bit safer. You won't feel like someone's taking it from you, you know. Right, right. Now, I don't know. I didn't mean to get dark. <laughs> no, 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 that's not dark. I mean, that's. I think that's really helpful advice. Yeah, um, that's really helpful advice. And always starting from like a positive place supportive place like that too because um it um I don't know and maybe this is like dark also but I but I I do think that um like DPs who want to direct sometimes Mm -hmm. will kind of Mm -hmm. create a situation where obviously the image is like the most important thing but sort of Mm-hmm. putting it above all the other pieces. Um, so I think like, yeah, I'm, all, I'm just always a fan of a good level setting uh, check-in um, mm-hmm. early on. Cause that, that can um, save everybody a lot of woe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, be, look, the, the hard realities are this. Um, you're the director, right? So at the end of the day, it's your name. So it's your name on the front of the piece. 
Uh, you're the one that if it doesn't work right, if the scene doesn't cut well, if the audience doesn't respond to it, um, and if you're working for inv- with investors, uh, you're the first one to get the blame on that. Um, when it comes to an audience watching a movie, if they see something that they don't like, or if it doesn't play out the right way, or if it doesn't make sense to them, or if a character doesn't land the way it is, you're the one that's going to get blamed for that. And when you're on set, everybody has a hundred different ideas, even prior to that, when you're writing ideas out, or if you're developing a script with a production company, um, everybody thinks they know what the right way to do things are. And they'll be very forceful about how they're pushing things on you. Like, you should do it like this, and we're not going to get started unless you change this. There needs to be more development with this. And at the end of the day, all those people that are like very uh, vocal vocal about it um, disappear when the blame game comes around. So they're all gone at the back end. So you have to remember as a director that – (laughs) you're essentially a scapegoat for the entire piece. And so make sure that when you're doing things, I'm not saying act in fear and I'm not saying act aggressively, just remember that. And at the end of the day, if you're ever in a situation where you're feeling bullied or if you're feeling insecure because someone that knows more than you is telling you to do things, remind yourself like, A, you're there for a reason. If you got hired in that position, you're there because they think you're good right? So you're there because you you Mm -hmm. know your stuff. And then B, um, it's your ass on the line. It it always is going to be your ass on the line. So make sure a decision that's made is one that you can live with and that you can explain. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I I think it's important that we talk about all this stuff. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, it is really important. Yeah. Nobody's, I mean, I'm sure there is like a book with this in it, but I haven't read it. <laughs> yeah, no, no one tells you this. No one, does, no one tells you this stuff. And yeah. I, I mean, I and I, I'm happy that we're talking about this because I have nothing but respect for the AD departments um, because as a director, you rely so heavily on the AD department because movies become insane. Like it's just like, where are we shooting and how are we doing this and what are we pulling together and where am I right now? I'm, it was spun around like a hundred different times, and you need to have that structural department to lean on. And Mm -hmm. it's, I mean, I could never do it. It's so stressful. It just seems so stressful (laughs) from, from this end. Like, how did you process the stress of being an AD for so long? Um, I mean, like barely, I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I was, an AD for like five years. Um, yeah. Um, I mean the stress, that's part of why I don't think I could continue doing it too. Um, every job has its own type of stress. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the reason the, the AD stresses the can be the hardest is that, um, you have to communicate with a lot of different people um, where you're sort of just giving people information from a different department. So a lot of times it's like, I need you to do this thing because they're doing this over here. And it's Mm -hmm. always just a conversation about doing stuff um, where you're, it's a little bit of a game of telephone. So knowing as much as possible about every department 
helps, but people just take out their stress on the messenger. It's kind of like shooting the messenger over and over again all day. Um, But I also think that stuff has changed even in my, you know, short time being um, working on sets. Mm -hmm. There's a lot less um, tolerating of like the screaming and the um, toxic environments, um, which Mm -hmm. is really great. So I think, um, I think earlier on, I would definitely take things a little bit more personally, but then I just got better at, um, you know, either letting things roll off or kind of just like telling people if they were being unreasonable. Um, yeah. Cause it's, (laughs) and it can be, I think my, one of my strategies is sort of like, if somebody has a big issue, I'm like, I know, right? Yeah, totally. Like, <laughs> I know that really sucks. I was about to say that to you. And people are like, oh, okay. Okay. So you're going to help me? Because I think that people are like coming with this frantic stress energy because they want to do their jobs well and because they yes. have an issue. Um, but once they know you're like on their team, the tone totally shifts. Um, and that, and kind of like bringing people onto your team like that can be hard if the first thing they say to you is kind of an attack, Yeah. but sort of ignoring that very first sentence and then saying like, I know, right. Isn't that, isn't it? Yeah. Today is really rough, whatever it is. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but it's, it's, it's sort of like, you're the, you're like the conductor or like the narrator. So, um, yeah. But I do think that like, there are some really whack people. And I will say that like, oftentimes the people that are the, um, most frequent, uh, uh, violators of this rule, I suppose, (laughs) are like younger people, younger department heads, Usually mm-hmm. men, but not always, mm-hmm. who are not secure about their jobs, so they feel like they need to perform mm-hmm. some kind of weird role. Um, whereas people that have worked in the industry for a really long time tend to have seen it all, so they're not like under any illusions that yelling at the AD is going to get them what they want faster. Um, <laughs> it's so, true. It's very true. So it's like everybody needs to chill, especially yeah. if you're, you know, a young department head. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's that imposter syndrome stuff. It's a, it's like, mm-hmm. I find it with a lot of younger directors too, where, you know, you end up yelling and screaming because you don't have the answers and it, or because you haven't done, the, you haven't done the fucking work. You haven't done the prep. You haven't done it. And so they get into a situation where they feel like they have to be louder or they have to blame other people. And that's where I've seen a lot of the sort of toxic stuff come from. And, you know, you sort of hit this point where as you get older, as a director, you go, ah, I fucked that up. And if I, if, if, if I'm, if I'm yelling on set, if I'm screaming and throwing chairs around, the sonic, the 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 seismic repercussions of that destroys the project. 
Like that, mm-hmm. you you really can't recover from that. And so, I failed as a director when I do that. That's that's a like a, my whole role as a as my job is to be uh, the lighthouse, the beacon, the sense of comfort, the sense of security for the actors and for the talent, and the inspiration for everybody to you know not be with their families and be working such long hours and stuff. And so to have that kind of temper tantrum, you've fucking failed that like, that's, that's a failure as a director when you do that stuff. And I feel that same way with department heads where if a department head starts to be temperamental and the thing I drives me crazy is like when a department head, you meet them for the first time and the first sentence out of their mouth is, so how long is today going to be? And you're just like, why, (laughs) why are you fucking here, man? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's the yeah. first, you know, like, oh, God, man. It, it, I'm sure you've heard that a lot. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Or like, or like, and I'm all, I'm all for the, the occasional gossip and uh, jovial complaints, but, or the like, man, did you see breakfast? It's like, yeah, I yes. just got here yeah. also. Like, yes. Sure. Yeah. Breakfast wasn't good. I don't know. Do we have anything more interesting to talk about? Um, <laughs> Especially with the grips and stuff. And I, I, I used to give a reality <laughs> check. I'd give a reality check to those guys. I go, you know, dude, I used to fucking paint houses, and I worked on airplanes before I did this job. Every day I showed up, no one had a fucking table with a spread for breakfast for me, and I was out there <laughs> painting houses and shit. So, like, you guys, you guys are in a very tough job. I know how hard it is to pull to pull four hour cable through the mud in the woods. That sucks, and it's a it's a brutal gig, but also on a union job, there's someone walking around with a tray of brisket. <laughs> Why <are you> doing <laughs> let's, let's have a fucking reality check. Oh, I'm sorry. Lobster tails again on this gig. That sucks. <laughs> oh my gosh. Hilarious. Yeah. It's hilarious, yeah. man. Like the ramen part ran out of pork <laughs> shoulder. <laughs> my day is ruined it's like god yeah. dude have a reality check you could be an electrician that's running cables through walls every day and you're eating out of a bag lunch in a corner like every other person does in this country on the planet yeah. you know yeah. reality yeah. check bro reality check. Totally. <laughs> totally. so yeah. i Good would vibe, say, totally. yeah exactly man and you know what's interesting is you can see, I'm sure that you're a great director to work for because you've had all those experiences and you you must be able to bring all that into how you run your sets. Yeah, I definitely, definitely aspire to, um, and having right. The empathy and humility, like all of those things is super important. Um, yeah. And I kind of, I kind of know what everybody's doing. I'm aware of aware of the mechanism. Mm-hmm. And I, I also see that with, I've, I have some actor directors I've worked with. I've seen that too. Um, where like I did a bunch of years ago, I did a short that Chloe Sevigny directed and she's clearly been on set like her whole life. Like she knew exactly what everybody was doing Yeah, and could tell people were not doing their jobs correctly. Like <laughs> also, <laughs> which is hilarious. So I think that, um, yeah, I, hope that I'm bringing all of that in as a director. That's definitely my goal. Um, 
because ultimately like I love being on set I like love the crew love the family of it like you said about not being people being away from home not with their families like that's I take that seriously and I think when you're a director it's like everybody's here to help me make this or if you're writer director help me make this thing that was in my head so yeah, yeah. let me let me come from that place um and be grateful and try to make this a good experience for everybody and create an environment where people feel um, motivated to make their best work. Mm -hmm. And when you were working as an, uh, an AD, was there anything that you were just hungry to see done? Like, were you, watching how the director was like, uh, you know, inspiring talent to find a scene. Like what was the thing that you were like, whoa, 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 you'd stop your work and make sure that you were there for to watch. What was the thing that you were hunting for on sets? Mm. I think something that, struck me kind of very emotionally were the moments when you're working through really tough material mm -hmm. with the mm -hmm. actor, whether it's really emotional or really physically demanding. Um, and seeing a director be aware of that and kind of create an environment where that felt safe to do and mm. where their effort felt valuable. Cause I've also seen the opposite, right? Like you're doing a stunt or something and the performer is being asked to do it way too many times. Um, mm -hmm. And nobody's stepping in to, or they're stepping in against the director's wishes. But I think the, the most powerful moments were definitely when I've seen directors kind of create that space for a really emotional scene because even though it's true that um, you have some actors who you call cut and they wipe the tears off their face and they're like, I'm fine. I'm just acting. But then there are other people where because they're eliciting, eliciting a really strong emotion, they are going to that place yeah. and need somebody to hold their hand and kind of be there with them through that. Um, so that, and I feel like I've been in, and that can also come at like weird moments. So I think in a lot of times I've seen that when it's a movie where there's a lead that's just in every, every scene, like they're number one on the call sheet there every day and they're part of the family on the crew, right? Mm -hmm. Like everybody, they're chill with everybody. Everyone's having a good time. But I have seen in the best scenarios, I've seen the director kind of keep in mind that they're doing something very different and being able to give them space mm -hmm. in those moments um, can really go a long way. Yeah. Yeah. And that comes from experience. Oh, man. That's so valuable. It took me a long time to learn that just as a director. And, you know, you find yourself, especially if you're friends with the actor, 
and you guys have like a very close relationship and and like you said they become buddy buddy with the crew mm-hmm. and then you're about to roll and i think acting i have nothing but respect for acting because i i can't do it and i feel like the, the ability to either whether you're me- whatever your process is if you're method if you're not method like if, if you just to be able to tap into this emotion and turn on these tears or 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 find the right uh, place to get started before you walk into the scene, or even just remembering the sense of continuity that you had three weeks ago when you're doing something. Right. Uh, th- the respect I have for that is insane. And it's two different brain sets, right? Because you're on set dealing with a lot of tech. There's a lot of tech stuff that's happening. And it's like, where do we put this 18K? You know, And then in the same bit, and back when I would shoot my own stuff and I just shot and directed something, you have to wrap your brain around both angles of that where like you're working with like a crew that is filthy and they're exhausted and they're, they're all about task oriented things. Like we have to get this amount of things done today, or I have to be able to get this to that. And so you're trying to be empathetic towards them. And it's like, yeah, I know this is great. This sucks. You did a really good job. Uh, getting that there in time, or th- like you're you're you landed that dolly move perfectly, and like that's the mode that you're in with them. And mm-hmm. when I was early as a director, I found myself using that same sort of mindset, which was very sort of crew oriented with my talent, and it, I, it didn't really work the same way. And it, that's why when I joke about it on the show all the time, when I first started directing, I always saw talent as like this little hurdle or this little huddle of unicorns that I was afraid to scare away as a director. Um, Because it, the mindset that I have now when I'm working with directors is it's like this sort of like keeping the emotion safe, like keeping the ability to, to go a very sort of emotional and dangerous place in front of, you know, grips chomping on like brisket. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like how do you build this atmosphere for them? And it becomes as a director, you have to have like both sides of that. You know what I mean? Do you feel the same way? Absolutely. Yeah. And and uh and that can be really hard because right, the crew mode is maybe faster paced. It's very business. Yeah. Kind of straightforward kind of objective information is being communicated sometimes. And then you kind of need to slow down and sort of flip to this different mode um, so that you aren't right. Treating them like they're because, you know, it is, I do think it's good to remember that like the actor, they are a crew member, but they're just doing a very different job. And, and right. Like, gosh, we're really, Really, um, picking on the grips. Pick another. No, no, Nobody, we're not picking on them. The sound person, like the whole crew, doesn't stare at the sound person while they're working, but the actor, every, every everybody stares at them while they're doing their job. So it's a really different, different feeling. Well, um, well, let me let me jump in there and say no. I think that there are often times that we are staring at the sound person. That job sucks. <laughs> Because no matter how much money you spend on your gear, no matter how great that gear is, it always fucking fails. 
It always fails. And it seems like the, the biggest skill that a great sound mixer can have is to be patient with the fact that his gear's always going to fail. There'll be some wireless like uh, uh, issue. There'll be some sort of like radio waves that are, <laughs> that are fucking with their wireless communicators or the microphone wasn't placed in the right spot or there are airplanes and dogs and all sorts of shit going on. That is an incredibly stressful gig. Um, and so we are staring at them but it's it's not we're not staring at them and judging them as people we're judging their work and i think right. that actors is a tough gig because at the end of the day you're being judged by your your personal appearance by your attitude and by your emotion and those are all things that you're born with those aren't skills that you can hide behind and so like understanding that the vulnerability that is required to be even uh, even uh, mediocre at that fucking job is is so much man i my heart yeah. breaks my heart breaks for actors consistently because of what they have to go through it's insane what you got to do yeah yeah it's insane and uh yeah and then just being right being on set as a director and just sort of being like okay all these crazy things were just happening getting this shot set up but now i need to like slow my heartbeat down yeah and really focus on what's happening on the monitor um and yeah i mean did you ha did you have to do anything what was your process on um your last film what was your process with your with your talent have you learned do you have a rhythm? Do you have uh, a series of steps that you go through to put people in the mood? I think that, um, hmm. I guess the last few things I've worked on are often family, have been families. Um, so I think that, one thing I like to work on is the relationship between the characters and sort of making people really comfortable with each other. Hmm. Um, and then I think the other piece is more than necessarily like a very detailed backstory, which can be helpful, but more than that, just like what was this character doing like right before this scene started and what are they going to yes. be doing right after? Because yes. I feel like that is that can be really helpful because it helps you establish what mood they're in in the scene and kind of what their their goal is mm -hmm. and you know what they're thinking about is going to happen next kind of informs how they're they're taking all of these actions or what they're saying um so and I do get can you know can get nitpicky about um like intonation and you know specific line reads that sort of thing but then i think what i'll often do there is if something's getting really tough is step back and say like let's just talk about this for a second like is there another way that you think the character would say this that would maybe come out of your mouth better and like let's try that mm. um mm. and sometimes that works sometimes it doesn't but um 
it kind of depends if you have somebody that an actor who really just wants to do the lines exactly how they're written or somebody who's kind of excavated the character a little bit more and has some ideas about what they would do or say. That's, that's interesting. Cause you write your own stuff. Do you, yeah. do you feel uh, overly pressured because it, it takes a lot of fucking work to write something that, that works. And then you go through the process of imagining these characters and hearing their voices in your head. And then you put all that down on the page. Do you find yourself overly precious with that stuff still? Yeah, I think it goes back and forth. Like there are some, yeah, there are some sentences where I'm like, it has to be exactly this way. Um, And other times I'll, I'll basically just try to try to open that up when I feel like I'll, you know, be okay with a line changing. Um, Cause I've, I've probably, I've, feel like I've definitely had a scenario where I've been like, maybe let's workshop this a little bit and then it doesn't work. And we just go back to the original, original Mm -hmm. wording. Mm -hmm. Um, and then obviously like it's all about prep. So help it's, you know, the more rehearsal, the better, because then hopefully some of these decisions are made not on set. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So I, but I also like, I'm not, um, I think with my horror and uh, for the stuff that I write, um, I tend to be a little bit more sparse with the dialogue. Um, so what will often happen, what is more likely to happen is me cutting dialogue Yeah. while we're going. Yeah. Um, especially, especially if it's scenes with people that know each other really well and scenes with a family that knows each other really well. Um, for me, so much more is communicated through like looks and gestures. Yes, hundred um, percent. It's often better without without that line that we're like agonizing over. Well, dude, a hundred percent. And <clears throat> so, like, I'm in the horror genre as well, and everything is everything is scarier when it's not spoken about. And and like, I always feel like exposition is the most boring fucking thing in horror. And um, when when I'm working on stuff, I find that whenever, look, there, I think, it, and here's kind of the benefit, because I don't write a lot of my own stuff. Like, I'll, I'll go through the process of, of designing the story and, des- and designing the structure of what I want, and then I have my screenwriter do a lot of the writing. And I actually like it that way, because I'm not very precious with any of it. Like, the, the I mean, the whole first process when you're doing a when you're showing a script to talent is you're crossing out all the screen the screen direction on it you're like i don't want you to pay attention to any of this i don't want the 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 writer to tell you how to pick up a glass of water you're gonna fucking do it as the character like so get rid of all that and so like i think it's a lot harder to do that if it's my work if i'm writing something down as opposed to if someone else does that work and i had a really long conversation with my screenwriter and uh, I said to him, like, man, I feel so fucking bad for you because you do the hardest legwork to put this thing together on the page. And then a lot of it is just sort of taken apart. And he goes, well, dude, my, my role is to write a movie so that it doesn't exist visually yet. And so I have to write it out this way so that when, uh, you know, investors read it or, or uh, execs read it, um, 
it's plainly written for them and that it, it should change. And it's okay if it does change when you're there, because at the end of the day, it's whatever's on the screen. It's whatever plays out. It's however the emotions are transmitted. And so if you lose three lines of dialogue, great, who gives a shit? I had to write yeah. those three lines of dialogue in there because you, you can't see anything when it's a script. So they have to be there so that you know where to go, but lose those fucking things, you know? And I think there's a, there's a sense of freedom when you're not as precious about these things that you can actually be in the moment with this talent. I don't know how many times I've shot stuff. I just shot two days ago, shot stuff with an actor who walked to the doorway and I, I, I gave him a line and I said, say this and that. And in my head, I had him saying that stuff because I couldn't see it. And it was like, you physically have to say this because I can't see it. And then he went and he said it. I go, that looks like shit. Can you try something else? And then he did it and suddenly improv this amazing performance and this amazing line that I never knew existed. And I went, okay, right. there it is. There it is. There's the real fucking thing. Okay, grab that and put that in here. And we'll change everything else for that, you know? That's great. Yeah. yeah totally. Yeah, yeah. Do you feel the same way? Do you, like, what's your- Absolutely. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, because I think that, like, the, the, it's, right, the script's like a, is a blueprint that, just changes shape a lot as as you're in pre-production, as you're interfacing with all of the different people that put it together. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a really good way of putting it. Like I had to have them say these things because that's what their face is going to be doing, but you can't <laughs> see that on the script. And if I write it out, it's going to sound really dumb. So mm -hmm. uh, yeah, totally, totally. And it's, it's and that's like a having a, being open to that sort of discovery is really important because that's where the, some of the most exciting stuff happens because somebody, and I think you needed to have written those two awkward lines in the first place because that gave the performer an idea of what was supposed to happen. Even mm -hmm. if that's not what ended up in the film, that was, that was a step in the process. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that becomes like this subconscious, like it's behind their eyes. You know what I mean? Like subconsciously they go like, I know I was supposed to ask for pancakes, but I don't need to ask for pancakes. I could just look at the, the, the waitress and I know behind my eyes that I'm asking for pancakes, but I physically don't have to say it. And this, that may just subtly give them uh, the gesture that they don't even think about that they do because of that line was there. And, and that makes it feel more real. It's, it's, it's wild. It's such a magic thing that we do, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty great. <laughs> it's, wild. it's wild. It's like this weird, like, you know, smoke and mirror show with all the technical shit that we do. And then when it comes to emotion, it's, it's kind of the same thing. And I don't want to call it trickery. You one could call it inspiration, but you're you're trying to do the same thing with your talent where you're doing a bunch of smoke and mirrors, whether it's on the page or whether it's in like some of the conversations during prep or some of the discovery of the character and 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 you're just trying to give them that imaginary that those imaginary tools that trigger something that feels fucking real. When everything that we're doing is absolutely not real. <laughs> It's it's wild. <laughs> that part. That part. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I, well, you know, um, I'm excited to, to talk to you and, and I appreciate you, you know, going off the rails with me a little bit here and, and sort of going into the nit, nitty and gritty on this. And, you know, I mean, I could have run this like a standard interview going like, what was it like being on set? And uh, how was it like working with your crew? And and uh, everybody would have been bored with our interview because we hear that a hundred times. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad. I love going off the rails. And um, it's like every time I talk, every time I talk about this stuff, it's it's helpful. And I'm learning how I feel about things. So yeah. I love it. Yeah. So what, um, what's the, uh, the new piece? So you just teamed up with Fujifilm on a new piece. What's, what's, what's this one all about? Yeah. So this one, um, we shot, um, in this past August, um, about an hour North of LA in Lancaster. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. And it's set, it's set 20 years in the future and it's very much a, climate change story about a family of three, a a grandmother, mother and daughter who live on a farm that is kind of past climate change, um, creating, making it into a desert. And part of, part of what, what I wanted to show the exercise was sort of, um, what, what life would be like um, kind of grounded in realism in that mm-hmm. sort of space, because um, I think that's probably what's going to happen is if we don't do anything, we'll slide into a new world and there isn't going to be some huge cataclysmic moment. We'll just kind of already be there. Um, but the film is from the perspective of the daughter, the young daughter who, um, is sort of uh, bored with her monotonous existence and she finds a sunflower and squirrels away water to grow it in secret. (laughs) Um, And that's, that's kind of the heart of the story. And for me, um, as much as it is kind of showing very much grounded in realism, what the future could look like. I also wanted to um, talk about the types of things that we nourish and give energy, energy to and how, you know, it sounds cliche maybe, but how uh, beauty is, beauty is important to cultivate even when, Mm. you know, low on food, low on other things. Um, Mm. Yeah. It's very different. In some ways it's very different from the stuff that I usually make, which is usually scary and um, um, more kind of darkly dystopic where, but I, I think because my, um, my brother had just had a kid who is now two um, and he's a climate scientist and my sister works in agriculture an agriculture nonprofit. Um, I kind of was motivated to make something with talking about climate change, but with a little bit more hope behind it um, mm-hmm. for the next generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. For the folks that are like being born into it, and they won't know the difference. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. and then also similar to other things, you know, family story, um, 
how different generations deal with deal with pain and deal with you know communicating to the to their kids to their grandkids so yeah right it's fascinating i'm excited to see is it finished yet i haven't seen anything from it it's finished um i'm submitting it to festivals now so hoping to premiere later this year hell yeah hell yeah and then so what is your um, okay. <clears throat> How are you on time? Are you okay on time, by the way? Because we're going a little long. Yeah. Yeah, I'm okay on time. Okay, totally. great. Yeah, because I, I feel like I steamrolled the beginning of this episode. So let me get into some of this. Um, how, uh, what's your process? Because you did inheritance, right? So you made that. Yeah. You got into a bunch of festivals. And then um, was there ever a feature script that went with this? Or was it just a standalone short? It it definitely was a standalone short. However, I have started writing the feature. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah. Within the past few months. Um, I, yeah, I'm proud of how the story is kind of, uh, can is kind of neatly wrapped up in a sense in the 14 minute runtime. Um, but I did start, I wrote a different feature, which I, um, and still in revisions, but have more or less completed. Mm-hmm. And I started writing another one and kind of realized a lot of the similarities to, sorry, huge piece of snow just fell off the roof, <laughs> crashed. <laughs> the, um, the similarities in themes to inheritance and sort of was like, Oh, I think there could be more here to a feature length inheritance than I realized and dove into that. So I'm, I'm, very excited about that and think, you know, in one sense, it's kind of funny that it took, you know, a year or two for me to come to that place. But I think if I had forced writing it earlier, it, it wouldn't have had as much heart in, as it, in it as it does now. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. So then, so you, you, you make this short, the short does the festival runs. What does, mm-hmm. what do the, did you get anything from the festivals? I mean, other than the, the obvious, which is like to screen it in front of an audience. Uh, in theory you did, right? You Did you do these festivals during the pandemic or did you actually go and get to sit in an audience and see people see it? I, it sort of premiered right when the vaccine came out. So mm-hmm. there was, there were, it premiered at Atlanta, which was virtual, but then I did get to go to some in person. I went to Palm Springs in person. Good. I went to Black Star in person. Um, good, good. So yeah, I went to I went to a number of them in person, which was great. Um, Do you like watching I a movie? To go to Asia, but Canada still wasn't letting Americans into the country, which I understand. Given <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. the <laughs> pandemic, but. Do you yeah. like do you like watching a movie with an audience? Yeah, I love I love watching it with an audience. Um yeah, I love good. watching it in a theater because it's very dark, so it helps to be in a black box with everybody and mm-hmm. the um you know, I'm very enamored with the sound design and the uh score for the film, so hearing it the way it's intended to be heard is, is really fun and so cool. definitely so cool. elicits a different, which I think is often the case with horror, unless it's a different reaction yes. from the audience. Yes. I love that too. 
I love it. It's why I do it. I do it to to sit in a room with a bunch of strangers and hopefully scare the shit out of them. That's why I I love doing it. Um, All right. So then you, so you got the experience. You got to go to at least a few of them. You got to watch it with an audience because at the end of the day, you know, you got to have that experience after all the hard work and all the hours and the labor that you put into it. Um, did uh, anything come about from the festivals themselves? Were you approached by anybody, or was it just those experiences? Um, definitely, I um, was able to get representation from festivals, nice. and um, and got more and got writing um, opportunities from people having seen it um, in the genre space, and you know the the film with Fujifilm that definitely came out of having a really strong, um, directing writing sample. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I'd say that it definitely changed a lot of stuff for me. Um, so didn't went in with not expecting what would happen and, um, you know, couldn't be happier. Feel very lucky. That's great. And, um, for representation, so who you rep by these days? I'm repped by WME. Nice. And uh, did they did they find you because they went to one of the shorts programs? Is that what happened? Um. So my so my agent is actually was somebody that was a friend of mine from New York, who we'd known each other for a bit. But I think definitely having the film, um, screen at festivals, um, be written up, sort of. Mm-hmm. Gave, gave me a little bit more legitimacy in his eyes, potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I would say that that definitely like dovetailed into it. Um, and it helps with, yeah, it's, I think that's kind of how you, I went into it wanting to make something, having people see it and had no specific expectations of what it was going to do for me. Um, mm-hmm. But it definitely you know, did things. I think it's probably helpful that I didn't have like really specific ideas going into the festival run also. Yeah. So I asked that question because there's a, there's a hundred different, well, there's thousands of different ways that people get representation. And I think a lot of younger filmmakers are always like, you know, like I need to get repped and how do I do this? And what's the best path for a short film? And, um, when I did my film 12 KM, um, I made a crucial error where when I was reading um, all the submission policies for festivals, they said that they would take shorts up to 30 minutes long. And so I made my piece about 28 minutes. And Mm. when I submitted it, all the festivals said, no, we're not going to take it because we're going to lose three shorts. And so, you know, that was a crucial error that I made. But I ended up getting representation because I had articles about the movie that no one could see written. And so I had, you know, a bunch of these companies writing to me and asking to see it. So the representation for me came from online stuff, not really from festival stuff, which right. was interesting. And and then I ask uh, you about the feature of it, because when I did my short, it was a proof of concept for a feature film. So I had all that loaded. So once the agents were interested or the management was interested, their first question was, 
is this for a feature? Because then they were instantly like, well, okay, this is valuable. So you're doing a short film that there's, there's a value in that. And we can take this out immediately and introduce you to production companies and send you down this path because there's a feature behind it. The right. same token. Um, did you have any of those questions? Was it, what was your, once you did get representation, what was the next step? Like what was the next call to action for you? Um, I definitely, you know, was, was writing, um, was writing a feature and kind of kept writing that and, um, taking, you know, open writing assignments and that sort of thing. Um, mm -hmm. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And I, yeah. And I think, um, you know, obviously going on generals, all of that and <laughs> yes, um, yes. Yeah, the whole the whole thing. <laughs> what's your hold on, what's your experience was with generals? How are generals for you? Um, I don't know. I I'm I think I'm a pretty out, um extroverted person, so I always like meeting people. Um and I think I'm I tr you know, I go into them as you know, generally meeting somebody and if something comes out of it that's great. Um but it's always interesting for me to hear like what different companies are doing, mm -hmm. what people are looking for and kind of observing from a macro level. Um, so mm -hmm. I, yeah. Feel, yeah. I feel the same way. I remember the first few that I got sent on and I was like, holy shit. And I was lucky enough that I was doing it right before pandemic. Cause now it seems like all meetings are zoom which is yeah. not as fun, which is not as fun. Because prior to that, it's yeah. like you, you get a pass to get walk on the set of Warner Brothers. And you're like, okay, well, if anything today, I get to walk around on the set of Warner Brothers with a pass. That's cool. Um, but uh, yeah, no, when I first started getting the general meetings, I was like, this is crazy. I'm going to go in, I'm going to talk to these people and they want to work with me. And then you, <laughs> then you come to the realization, it's like, no, they're just, they're just, they want to meet you. They want to see if there's something that might work. Maybe, maybe, but they just want to meet you. And half the time it's, you know, a favor that was pulled by your agent or your manager to have you go in and have this conversation. You're like, okay, all right. You know, so once I realized that, that a lot of the stress I let off the table and I was like, cool, you want to go in? What do we want to talk about today? You want to talk about barbecue? Let's talk about barbecue. <laughs> like what, what, what's the general meeting going to be about today? You know? Right, right, right. Yeah. And like, it's, it's um everybody has more fun if they don't feel like you want something from them um yeah. and that goes both ways so it's what my friend likes to call no game game like you have more game if you're if you don't think you need game you're kind of just like uh i don't know <laughs> well, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> like if you have like does that make sense like if you like if you're in high school and you have a crush on somebody, once you acknowledge that, you're like, okay, now I have no game because I'm like acting all awkward around this person. Yeah. But <laughs> if you don't, <laughs> if you don't have game, you're not trying to put any game on. Like yes. it's the no game, game, and you're that much cooler. So, but no, no, no Google. game, game. But you still have game having no no game, game. Right. So that exactly. That's, yeah. <laughs> Just layer as many kind of. 
counterfactuals on there and then you confuse everybody and you can talk about barbecue. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm t- like, I, I, I said that sort of as like a passing thing, but I, I realized that that's what it was about. And there sort of hits a point when you go into these general meetings where I think first and foremost, especially if they've seen your work, like if they've been prepped with a short or if they've been prepped with something, they're just trying to find out if you're a cool person to be around. And if, it, if it's someone that they want to even be in business with, you know? And so I think that for generals, I mean, how many generals do these people have to take every week? And how many of those meetings is a filmmaker that comes in and goes, I love Blade Runner, you know what I mean? And it's like, and I've always wanted to, you know, remake the thing. You know, they, they, they hear the same stuff over and over and over and over again. And so I just... No, no game game is a good way to put it. I just was like, I'm just going to go in there and talk about my other passion, which is like, you know, smoking meats and doing barbecue. Let's talk about that. <laughs> and then everybody loves to eat and everybody loves that shit. And they're like, yeah, we'd love to hang out or I'll talk about bar safaris. You want to go on a bar crawl? I'd love to go on a bar crawl. Because then you're, you're taking it beyond just it being a general meeting about your love of movies. Because obviously you love fucking movies if you're there and you've, brought in a short film and you know we can get nerdy about that if you want but like let's talk about life man and i think as i got older i felt a bit more confidence in the fact that i'm also i'm also filtering them out you know and you're like yeah is this someone i even want to fucking work with you know like totally what am i doing here <laughs> you know there's, there's been times that i've walked in with horror movies and i've walked in and i've looked at the posters on the walls of the production company, I'm like, you guys don't make any kind of movies that I make. Like, what am I doing here? Like, what is this yeah. about? What is this meaning about? You know, it's weird. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, this has been a cool conversation. I'm happy that we yes. had it. I really me am. Too. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. And I'm, I'm excited to see uh, inheritance. I really want to see it. Like, my first notion when I watch the trailer is I love the shot compositions and I love how in the moment the actors feel. And I just, it just smells like really hard crafted stuff. So I'm, I'm excited to watch it. You got to send it to me. I will. I will send it to you right after this. I'm excited, man. And it's, it's really cool. And uh, next time you come to LA, we should hang out. We should get beers or something and we can, uh, yeah, we can get, we I love get that. We can get dark off the microphone. <laughs> we, can, we can talk about all the shit that we deal with on sets, which would be fun. <laughs> yeah, I would love that. Sign me up. All right. Episode in the can. It's a good one, man. Like we started out a little slow, and then we just we went off on a little bit of a tangent there at the beginning, and I, I think it was an important one. And I hope um, I'm not feeling insecure about it. I, I think it's a good one. I think it's a really good one, and I hope you guys learn from it um, because no one ever talks about how to deal with those questions. Like, when is it okay? I've made some money, right? If you've made some money, you've got some money in your bank account. You get enough money to pay rent for the next five months. You just worked for two years 
on crews, right? You worked on feature crews or maybe you just worked on commercial crews and you stacked up enough money to be able to, um, you know, live for a while, right? And so now you're asking yourself the question like, ah, my car is a little old. It still kind of runs, but should I just get a new car? Should I buy a new car? Should I get car payments? Because then if I get car payments that I definitely have to take this next job or do I put that money into finally doing a short film that I've always wanted to do. Okay, yeah, yeah, I think I'll do that. Let's do that. And then you get that phone call, right? It always happens. You get that phone call for work, right? The person that you worked for before, that filmmaker that really loves you. Hey, Mike, I want you to come and you sh I want you to shoot my next piece. Of course you do, right? Because it's right when I'm ready to do my thing. Fuck, all right. And then in your mentally, you sort of go through this game of, oh, if I say no, then they'll never call me again. Or they'll find another shooter that's better than I am. Or uh, if I say no, then what happens if if work dries up, right? What happens if I can't rebuild the money? That fear is what stops you from making your project. Always does. And so I'm not saying turn down money. I'm not saying um, that that may, that may happen. That may happen. They may never. They may forget your number. You never know. But at the end of the day, you gotta ask yourself, why am I fucking doing this? Why did I get in this business to begin with? Did I get into this business to be a director, and did I fall in love with being a with a, a being an assistant director? Is that the gig that you like? And is that are you are you content with that? And there's nothing wrong with being content with that. It's a solid gig. You go on crazy adventures. You meet really wild people. You support fucking fantastic filmmakers. You're one of the big reasons why these these things are made. That's a great career path. If that's what you decide, if that's what your process, you went to film school, you thought you were gonna be a cinematographer, but then you took a gig, accidentally landed as an assistant director, and bam, you love it. I've had plenty of people on the show that have lived those lives, and they live fucking great lives, right? Really good shit. If you're good with that, thumbs up, man, awesome. But if you're doing this and you're you're constantly putting off being a director, constantly putting off being an actor or writer, right? There's this thing that you've always wanted to do. Ask yourself, why are you putting it off? Are you putting it off because you've got house payments and you gotta make some money? Are you putting them off because uh, you wanna learn more on sets before you decide to do this stuff? When have you learned what you need to know? At what point? Ask yourself that all the time. Have I learned enough yet? right to get started because the truth is your first piece chances are it's not going to be good chances are it's not going to be good but the stuff that you're going to learn doing that first piece is invaluable in fucking valuable right and so you got to do that at some point when's the right point to do that set yourself up check on check in on yourself don't end up being one of those people that 30 years from now you go, I never fucking did that. And then you become a, a bitter, bitter ass crew person. Cause you always wanted to direct and you're just staring uh, at that director with a lot of hatred. I've seen that crew people that are just like, why does this young kid get to do it? And I didn't asshole. That's because you didn't make the decision to do it. You didn't have, uh, all right. I got to pick the word, right? You didn't have the confidence to say, I can do this. I'm going to take a risk. Right? I don't know. Remember, think about that stuff. 
Um, thank you, everybody, for listening to the show. Uh, and I'm just wrapping it out, man. I got a bunch of shit to do. I got a couple more episodes to record today. So I'm going to leave you guys with a track. Thanks for listening to the show. And as always, I will see you next Tuesday. Mm-hmm.